Welcome to the Be The Church podcast, where we are engaging in conversations that will encourage you to live out your faith in everyday context so that you can be the church. Welcome. We have another week where we are interviewing yet again. Um, One thing to notice, if you're watching live, we have this lovely new tablecloth. Not that you would care, but I do, and it's kind of lovely. So uh, that's one reason to watch us on YouTube and not just listen to us, but listening is also good. Um, What can I say? I talk about important things. That's my job. So uh, today we uh, are going to be talking about the topic of uh, death and walking through some of those challenging times. Um, And with that, I would like Kevin to introduce us to our guest. Yeah, so uh, this is my buddy Artie Hart. Uh, He is a veteran pastor in the Gainesville area, the the city where, where we're located. I'm was privileged enough to meet Artie, gosh, probably seven or eight years ago now at this point. And yeah, that, that, that yeah. ping network group that, yeah. that we were a part of. And I think David Patterson was kind to me. He picked yeah. three really veteran <laughs> pastors to kind of stick with the young guy who didn't know what yeah. the heck he'd gotten himself into moving to plant a church here in Gainesville. And it was so, a good group. It was. Yeah. You and Phil and Bob were all just so kind to me and really, really helpful to me. And I really, really you know, look back fondly on that that group and that time we had together. But anyway, Artie has been a pastor, a church planner um, for decades and decades now. And then in the last few years, he has kind of transitioned out of full-time um, pastoral ministry in the sense of being a lead pastor at a, at a church and has moved into being a, a hospice chaplain here kind of in like the north central Florida region i'm sure because you're not just gainesville are you i am pretty much we the hospice that i work at serves 18 counties okay but we're divided into teams by that and gainesville's this is the headquarters for haven hospice and so um we're pretty much just a lodgewood county because we have a lot of patients in lodgewood county but some of my colleagues cover three and four counties with you know, more rural. Like yeah. Thing, so. yeah. So if you could already just share with um, us a little bit, just your background, your story of, you know, church planning and pastoral ministry for decades, and then what kind of led you and drew you into the current calling that you're, you're in now in this season of life. Okay. Yeah, you bet. Well, um, we were talking a little bit ago about the fact that I'm a rarity, a little bit of a rarity in Gainesville. I was born and raised here. And <laughs> so you don't see a lot of people, uh, you don't meet a lot of people who are born and raised in Gainesville. Um, it's so odd, in fact, that when I was a student at the University of Florida and people would ask where I'm from, I would say Gainesville, and they'd say, yeah, I know, but I mean before that. <laughs> and sometimes it would take about four times telling them, no, we have a hospital, we have, you know, the whole thing. So I, I grew up here, um, graduated from UF, went to seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, and Gainesville, Florida is the last place on the planet I thought it would ever be. My wife and I just knew we were going into foreign missions. That was our heart. That's what we thought we were going to do. Um, and I won't go into all the details about how we wound up back in Gainesville, but but wound up here in planting a church. It was, we didn't even really know we were planting a church when we started. We were meeting in our living room and just praying and saying, God, what's church supposed to look mm-hmm. like? And it wound up becoming the Vineyard Church of Gainesville. And uh, that was like in 1988. So that's way back. And before that, you know, youth pastor and associate pastor in a church and that kind of thing. So yeah, doing it a long time. Um, served the Vineyard for almost 30 years and wow. it's still going on, but, um, but handed it off a few years ago. And am now still involved in that church, still very much home, but um, but doing this for seven years now. Yeah. So, uh, not if you had asked me ten years ago if I would ever be a chaplain of any kind, much less a hospice chaplain, mm-hmm. I would have said no. You got your wires crossed. You're crazy. There's no way. So it was not on my radar at all. Um, and I'd be happy to share if you want how we kind of got there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Interestingly enough, and I don't know listeners and viewers if they appreciate exactly where we are sitting at this moment, but the church that I pastored ultimately bought this property, yeah. and we were meeting here, and uh, for I had 15 years or so, I yeah. pastored the Vineyard Church here in this facility over in the big auditorium, um, and. One of the greatest blessings of my life is that uh, my father, who yesterday would have been his 100th birthday, oh, wow. um, 
when he was in his fifties, he was told that he had a year to live. Um, but he, and, and his doctor said, um, but if you, if you quit drinking and smoking, you might have five, I doubt it, but at least you could decide what you want that to look like. And he did, he wound up really getting his life straightened out in the last three years of his life. He was a part of our church. So that was just one of my greatest blessings. But when he died, did his funeral. And um, at the moment of wearing all these hats, you know, we talked before going on the air, so to speak, about the fact that for many, many years I did 10 times as many weddings as funerals, and now that's flipped. But at the time, um, wearing the son hat, the dad hat, the spouse hat, the pastor hat, and pastoring my father just was mind-blowing. And the, the auditorium was full for the funeral. In the middle of it, I had a little bit of a kind of mystical experience. And, and that was that sort of still small voice just said, this deserves a bigger piece of your heart than you're giving it. Mm. And I didn't know what that meant. I just thought it meant you need to be more present, more compassionate, pay more attention when people are going through this. Yeah. And that's where I let it lie uh, for some time. But it wouldn't leave me alone. So I would talk to my wife about it. My wife is a hospice nurse. She's been with the same hospice that I work for now for 30 years. Oh, wow, okay. And so she would say, well, why don't you just come volunteer and uh, you know, see if there's something that you could do that would just help out. And we have volunteers of all sorts, so come volunteer in a care center. And I gave her a typical pastor response. I said, no, that's, you know, I'm too busy. I can't do that. <laughs> that worked for a while. I kicked that can down the road and uh, for a couple of years or so, but it just would not leave me alone. And so I finally said, all right, you know, I'll, I'll do that. So I began to volunteer in a care center and just hang out and be present with people. And I'll talk about that some in a bit, I suppose. But um, as I was doing that, I had this, <laughs> I would almost say foreboding sense, but this strong sense that this is more than you think it is. I really thought it was all just about listen better and pay more attention and be more compassionate. But it just kept growing. Simultaneous, I never saw myself as the pastor of the vineyard standing up front every week at 65 years of age or something. I really thought I was supposed to hand it off early. So there were two tracks running simultaneous, Mm -hmm. and we began looking for how to hand that off, and and we did that, and that's a whole other story. But um, we were out walking one night, and we were praying and just saying, God, is there something going on here that we need to know about? Mm -hmm. And and if there is, you're going to have to make it really, really clear. Mm-hmm. And so the next day I was sitting in my office a few yards from here and um, felt impressed to open up my laptop and look at the website of this hospice. And I did, and they were advertising for a part-time chaplain in Gainesville. So I called my wife and said, um, that, you know, they're advertising for a part-time chaplain. And she said, we don't have part-time chaplains. And I said, yeah, you do now. It's on your website. So she made a couple of calls, called me back and said, um, they said, if you're serious about this, they want you to apply for the job today. It needs to be today because they're going to offer it to someone else. So that night, for the first time in over 30 years, I sat at a computer and filled out a job application. Um, I <coughs> filled out very few of those in my life, really, because that's just not the way it usually worked for right. me. And so I did, and I sat there just before midnight with my finger hovering over the submit button, button going, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, <laughs> and clicked it. And um, there was a whole lot more details than that. But before I knew it, I was sitting in front of a couple of people there wanting to interview me and they were offering me a position. Um, I say to this day, I've never prayed so hard and laid out so many fleeces in my life as Mm -hmm. I did about that. I said, Lord, if this is not you, it's going to be a train wreck for Mm -hmm. not only us, but for this church. Um, But there were a lot of circumstances that just really led us to know this is it. So I began working full or part-time and still pastoring the church. And then after about six months, um, they asked us if it would come full-time. So I did that. We pastored with a team for a while and then eventually wound up calling a full-time pastor here as well. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the short story, believe that's it or not, cool. yeah. <laughs> how I wound up uh, wow. becoming a hospice chaplain. That's cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So Artie, what does a hospice chaplain do? I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are listeners and yeah. uh, they know what hospice is to some extent, but uh, yeah. kind of give us some insight. Well, you know, first hospice is, uh, a subset of palliative care. Mm-hmm. You know, palliative care is when there's really nothing we can do to fix what your problem is. I, I say in a very, very oversimplified way, there are two sides to healthcare. One is curative, curative and the other is palliative. And palliative doesn't have to be hospice care. It can just be, we can't do anything about that, but we can make you more comfortable. But hospice care is when it, it is end of life and we can't do anything about that, but we can make you more comfortable. And so that's what hospice care is about. It, it uh, originated in England, like in the 60s, just a desire to have people not all die 
in a hospital and to allow people the opportunity to die at home. Uh, I've learned an awful lot about this in the last seven years that I didn't really, really know, even though I was married to hospice for a lot longer than that. <laughs> uh, but, um, but that's what hospice is for, is to help people be comfortable, not suffer unduly when they're at end of life. So how does a chaplain fit into that? Um, I had so much to learn about being a chaplain when I came into this. And one of the old guys that had been around, like, I'm not a career chaplain. You know, I don't really care about having 20 hours of CPE, which is clinical pastoral education or a lot of accreditations. I'm just trying to fulfill the calling, I think, yeah. that God put on my life here. But I've met a lot of people that this was their thing. They wanted to do it. And one of the guys uh, named David was, he actually felt a call to be a chaplain when he was laid up in a hospital for months after a terrible automobile accident. He wound up becoming a chaplain. And one of the things he said to me that sort of helped me differentiate our discipline from the others, how do I fit in with nurses and social workers and all these folks? And he said, all the other disciplines bring what they do. We bring who we are. Mm. And that really spoke to mm. me because the thing that people really need spiritually is for someone to meet them where they are mm. and to just be with them. Mm. You know, I often think of the story of Job where he has his friends and they come and they try to tell him, one of them's trying to tell him why what's wrong with him <laughs> is wrong with him. And the other one's trying to tell him all the things he should do that will mm -hmm. fix it. And God ultimately at the end of the story says they were wrong. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and there's only one guy that kind of gets a little bit of a clue. And the best thing he does is just sit. Yeah. And that's really a part of what chaplains do. No, that's, Obviously, there's a whole lot more, but the presence is the important thing. Mm. And, and so, like, we have to write care plans just like every other discipline. We, okay. you know, nurses write, I want to get their pain from a 10 to a 7 over this many hours using this drug. It's kind of hard to do that for a chaplain. Right. But what we will do is say comforting pastoral presence is one of the things we do to help them have a greater sense of spiritual and emotional peace. And that's a, a care plan. Um, yeah. so we try to meet people where they're at and help them to experience what they are going to experience. Ultimately, there's no getting around it in a way that is not as bad as it would otherwise be. Yeah. And that's from a spiritual standpoint. I tell people all the time, um, we're here because we want to make sure that your needs are met, not only medically and physically, but also spiritually and emotionally. Yeah. And that's what we do. That's cool. So you've kind of touched on this already a bit, but what type of training is required to be able to get into yeah. your field? Yeah, well, you know, when I was in seminary, there were people that were in seminary to be chaplains. And as I said, when that was ever brought up, I just kind of scoffed at it. There was no <laughs> way, especially not like a military chaplain or something. It just wasn't right. anything that was in, on my radar. Um, but when I started feeling nudged this way, I thought, I don't even know if I qualify. So I found out really early that most places – require a master divinity degree. Well, I had that. Yeah. So, but then there is a specialized training and it's called clinical pastoral education. And it's taking the pastoral kind of ministry and putting it into a clinical situation. Mm -hmm. When I was in my interview, one of the women that was interviewing me asked me a question that really became formative for me. Um, she knew who I was and uh, she knew what I did. <clears throat> and she said, I have a question for you. And that is, are you going to be able to go from leading to coming alongside? Mm. And I, I thought it was one of the most perceptive questions I'd ever been asked. And it really encapsulated for me, helped me understand what I was walking into. Because mm. as a pastor, you're always leading. Yeah. It's somewhere, somehow, somebody. We're always leading in some way. Yeah. But in, in hospice care, you, um, you really are supposed to just come alongside and be there and meet people where they are. And consequently, of course, you know, we minister to people of all faiths and that kind of thing. So you wind up reading a lot of Henry now and. Uh, you know, um, you, so I had to go back and take clinical pastoral education, commuting to Jacksonville, doing on-call in Jacksonville, Baptist, the Baptist Hospital, uh, South location, and just learning what is it like really to minister to people that are not a part of your church. Mm. You know, part of the journey for me, I, I will back up and share this just a little bit. When, when I was praying through and laying out fleeces, I was on, on my way um, out of town, I was going to go to Nashville to a Q conference. If you know what that is, we're going to Q. And, yeah, I'm familiar and, with that. Um, and I was going, my wife was going, my associate pastor and his wife were going, and I went out to the mailbox and I, I got the magazine in the mail that's the alumni magazine for my seminary. And, and to be honest with you, I rarely ever read it. I usually just toss it. But on the cover was a chaplain's uniform. And it was right in the middle of praying about this. And so I went, oh boy. And so I tossed it in my suitcase, took off, went to Nashville, got to Nashville, and... Um, opened the magazine as I unpacked my bag and there was a picture of a military chaplain and the guy's name that was wearing the uniform was Vineyard. 
which is the name of our church. And so I just kind of felt like I had a hook in my jaw. You know, I was starting to feel like I don't think I have any real choice in this thing. Mm -hmm. But it did lead me to read the magazine. And one of the articles in the magazine likened the chaplaincy to uh, Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they're taken out of their normal environment, put Mm -hmm. in another environment, not really among what we think of as being God's people, but called to minister there. And I thought, I, I can do that. That's like being a secret agent for God, you know? I mean, that's okay. That's cool. Because I really never saw myself outside of the context of pastoral ministry in a local church setting or, you know, in the foreign mission field or something. Um, so those things helped me to come to a comfort level and, and also gave me some of the impetus to go and you know, to drive to Jacksonville and to be involved in that and yeah. to get that education. Um, but as I said, there, there are many different levels you can do that. The hospice I worked for required a master divinity in one unit of CPE. So the bar was kind of low. Yeah. It wasn't really high. But if you want to be a board-certified chaplain and, you know, teach or anything like that, I mean, there's, there's a lot more that can, you can do. <laughs> so once you started, you know, getting into actual, like, the clinical practice of it all yeah. and, and stepping in that, what, what were some things that you saw both, maybe even from the, the, the CPE classes, but, you know, drawing on your time as a pastor um, where you felt, okay, when I, I know you mentioned earlier, just presence yeah. is, is a big thing, but what are some other things uh, that you do as a chaplain that help you minister to people as they're approaching the end of life? Well, you really do try to find, you try to determine where they are and meet them there. Okay. And so now the, the reality is we're in North central Florida. We live in a, um, to use a little bit of political language, a blue city in a red state. Yep. And so Gainesville is as Gainesville is, but 15 miles any direction in Gainesville is in the middle of a whole different kind of area. Mm-hmm. And having said that, most of the people that I visit, most of the people that are our patients, um, 80%, 85% have a Christian worldview. Now, it's a theological question as to where they're really at with all of that. Right. But their expectation is that their pastor, their chaplain is a Christian. He's going to read from the New Testament. He's going to pray for them in Jesus' name. That's pretty easy yeah. if you come from the world I come from. Um, now, if I was chaplain in Brooklyn, it would be entirely different. Yeah. So for me, that part is, is really not that difficult. But at the same time, just because somebody puts Christian, you know, in the— um, the paperwork they have to fill out right. or Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist or whatever um, doesn't really tell us a lot about where they're at. And so what I try to do is find out where they really are at and just ask them, you know, where do they find their source of comfort? Mm-hmm. What makes it when in times of stress, when you're really having a tough time, where do you turn? And sometimes, you know, they'll say prayer, they'll talk about their church. They'll talk about um, their just the depth of their faith and that mm-hmm. kind of things. But sometimes they don't, no. And so one of, the, one of the things I did real early was just recognizing that there are all kinds of ways to build bridges to people. Mm-hmm. And so it was real early in my career at Haven. Um, I came into the care center one day and one of the nurses said, would you go into this room? There's a couple in there that are really kind of fighting and, and wonder if you could do something. <laughs> and so I said, sure, I'll go. So as I was walking away from her, she said, oh, yeah, they kicked two chaplains out earlier today. <laughs> and I thought, well, why are you sending me to the lion's den, you know? And so I, I walked in and I was, I joked earlier and said, oh God, oh God, oh God, that's actually a very highly theological prayer. And <laughs> it's sometimes the best prayer. So I was walking in just saying, God, what am I to do? And I walked in and I said, hi, my name is Artie. I'm a chaplain. And the young man said, um, well, what do you want me to do? And I said, I, I don't have anything I want you to do. I'll talk Gator football if that's what gives you peace. And he said, what do you think about the new coach? And I said, well, and I pulled up a chair and sat down and I said, I think he's got a chance. He had a great program in Colorado and he coached under Nick Saban. I think he's got a really good chance. Now I was not a prophet. That didn't work out real well for that guy. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but we just sat there and talked Gator football for a while. He asked me about different guys in different positions, quarterback and so forth. And we talked and after about a half hour of it, he said, tell you what, preacher, come back tomorrow and I'll let you pray for me. Well, first of all, the world I come from, when he said, tell you what, preacher, I knew exactly what his background was. Mm -hmm. And I said, all right, man, yeah, I'll see you tomorrow. And I I learned there that to really minister to people and to meet them where they're at, to come alongside, look for clues. Mm -hmm. You know, I look around the room. If there's a Bible, it looks well-worn as opposed to a Gideon's Bible sitting on a counter. If I'm in their home and there are a lot of deer heads on the wall, I'll say, did you kill that? You know, I don't know a lot about that stuff 
but I showed interest in what they're interested yeah. in. And often what we'll find is when you do start talking about that, just like the, the guy, you know, with the Gator football, he cares about me enough to talk. I'll, mm. I'll let him come back tomorrow. Mm. Uh, one of the doctors I worked with jokingly started calling me the Gator football chaplain. And she, <laughs> she told a group of hundreds of people, we have a chaplain who just talk to people about Gator football. And I said, wait, no, you know that I do more than it's that. more right? than that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, it was interesting when my family first moved here, um, as someone that loves sports and loves football, among other things, some people had told us, like, I, I, do you know what you're walking into? You know, I'm from the Mid-Atlantic, and I was yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah, like, we love football, we're good. No, I mean, it is a religion unto its own down here for sure. So it's good that you're able yeah. to bridge that gap, you yeah. know. Where <laughs> yeah. it, it helps that I was born and raised here and bleed orange and blue. Yeah, you know, so. <laughs> and an alumni and, yeah. you know, all, yeah. all the things. So. Yeah, right. So you've talked about kind of like primarily what you try to do with um, the patient. What about, yeah. um, does your role also provide any sort of like counsel or help to the family of those that are experiencing Absolutely. Well? I, I tell people again all the time, I'm here not only for your mom or your dad, I'm here for you. Mm. And I'll, as, as I'm introducing myself as a lot of myself, if it's on the phone, I'll say, you know, my name is Artie. I'm a chaplain. I just want to call and let you know you got a chaplain on your team. I'd love to come out and meet you. Mm. And um, I'm not here to push anything on you, just here to to offer you spiritual support and emotional support. And a lot of times our primary ministry will be to the families. Um, and then, and, and actually as a chaplain, I'm not really primarily responsible for what happens after, mm. but hospices take that seriously. And so I can with confidence say, we're not going anywhere when this is over. Mm. It's not over. Mm. We have bereavement counselors that are mm. here. There's no charge for that for like up to a year. Mm. If you need to meet That's with good. someone, talk with someone. So, um, so the, the care really in some ways is more for the families. That's cool. You know? Like providing like grief counseling. Grief counseling, like that. absolutely. Yeah. 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 And there, um, you know, grief really is just a response to loss. There's yeah. not one way to do it. Absolutely. And that's one of the things people experience it in very, very different ways, but it's just a response to loss. And so somebody to walk them through that. One of the greatest tools in my toolkit as a chaplain is we call it normalization. And that is just, you're not alone in that mm. because so much of the time, the things that people go through when they're dying or when they're losing someone that they love, their emotions are all over the place and they feel guilty for feeling the feelings they're feeling. Yeah. And to help them understand you're just being very human right now. Yeah. Um, is a, a huge part of what we offer people. And that alone helps a lot of folks come to a deeper mm. sense of peace and comfort. Mm. That's good. Um, so when you, when you're helping like counsel, um, families that, you know, have experienced this and, and, and walked through things, are there, do you do any of the, you know, maybe funeral side of things as well? Do they often, because yeah. of the relationship you end up, yeah. um, forming with them? Yeah. And in fact, I mean, I could probably do a funeral every week if, if I allowed myself to, we just wow. simply cannot do that. Right. And it, it's just that was a real adjustment to my mm -hmm. world because as I Being said, I did no. tons of weddings and not yeah, a lot yeah. of funerals. Um, we were talking earlier that most of the funerals I did when we first started out were somebody's grandpa, you know? Um, but um, you develop a relationship with people and often they do not have a pastor. They do not have a church. And so when it comes time for that, they ask if, if I would do it. And if there is a way that I can accommodate them or one of the other chaplains come alongside and help, we absolutely do that. In fact, I'm, I'm proud of the fact the place that we work does have a care center. And one of the things they did is they very intentionally, they built a chapel with one of the large meeting rooms adjacent to it so that they can pull the wall back and it looks like a big church building with stained glass on the end. And anybody that wants to do their funeral there can do it and no charge because not everybody has access to a building right. yeah, to absolutely. do that. That's good. That's good. So, Kind of along those lines, as we're talking about dealing with families, yeah. have you ever had any unusual family requests? Um, you know, <laughs> I actually was thinking about that one beforehand, and I, I can't. There's a lot of unusual stuff that happens with families. Mm -hmm. Now, in the hospice world, it's not unusual at all, but when you first introduce to it, it's unusual mm -hmm. because just the acuity. Yeah. Um, and, and I know if I thought about it for a long time, I could probably tell some funny stories of, of family request. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the requests do line up along faith lines. Mm, okay. So I would hesitate to use the word unusual because for them it's very normal. Right, right. Some yeah. faiths, burial very quickly is very, very important. Okay. And so us helping to make that happen and have that person um, in a place where they can have a funeral within 24 hours is very 
know, for Jewish people, that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, there's some faiths that you cannot touch the body for 24 hours. And so we, we have those kinds of things that seem a little unusual, but for them it's not unusual, and we have to be attuned to it enough. And this mm, just comes from listening, yeah. you know, so that we can honor their, their wishes. Now, the other side of that, though, and, th- and this too could be seen as unusual, but the acuity that happens in families when someone is dying is sometimes just off the chain. Right. And so you have one dynamic that occurs a lot is the people that are the furthest away they have a sense of I haven't done enough. And so they come in from all over the country mm-hmm. and try to do and try to take away from people that have been doing the care on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And that's a tough place to navigate, to help them be a part mm-hmm. and feel like they're being loved and ministered to as well. But at the same time, recognize this person that's been giving them baths all the time, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So it can get really intense in a wonderful way, or it can get really intense in a, so you're not just providing grief counseling sometimes, right. but you're all, and, you know, being there for someone, but sometimes yeah. even doing, you know, conflict resolution counseling yes. between, yeah, yeah, interesting. Sometimes. Yeah. You know, one of the, you, you mentioned unusual. I will tell one story that, um, that I think was, this is just a cool one for me. I was in the care center one day and I, and I see people in homes, see people in facilities, care center. So I'm sort of all over the place, but, but I, I was in the care center. And I was going to see a patient, and as I was walking toward their room, I heard music coming out of the room, and I realized this is live. This is a person that's sitting and playing a guitar. So I walked in, and it was one of our larger rooms, and the room was full of people. There were chairs in a circle all around this bed, and there was a young man sitting at the bedside. He had his iPhone laying on his grandpa, and he had a guitar, and he was singing to his grandfather. Wow. And as I stepped into the room, I looked across the room, and there was one empty seat, and there was a gentleman sitting there, and he patted the seat and told me to come sit down. So I just walked in and went down and sat down as inconspicuously as I could and listened and watched and just observed this whole thing. And when he finished, the gentleman next to me turned and said, what can we do for you? And I said, um, well, I, I, I came in here to minister to you. You guys have just ministered to me. And then the group started breaking up and people started getting up and walking out. And I realized at that moment that most of the people in the room were family members of other patients from up and down mm. that hallway. And this family had invited them all in mm. to share their grief experience together mm. as this young man was playing music. It was one mm. of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And it just happened. It was just spontaneous. You couldn't script that or make it happen. Mm. That's oh. interesting. That's oh, really, really that's powerful. Well, that, that actually, I think, is a good transition kind of for my next question because one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on, Artie, is not just because you're a chaplain and, and you deal with this a lot, but you because of your background in pastoral ministry for mm-hmm. decades, um, you know, the the goal of our podcast is kind of, kind of to encourage those in the church to be the church, to be the yeah. hands and feet of what yeah. Jesus asked us to do. And so... What what has your experience both in pastoral ministry and now as a, a hospice chaplain um, led you to to maybe be able to to say to those that are listening how the church or community of faith can do a better job of right. helping those who are approaching loss and then also grieving loss? What what are some big things that 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 the the community of faith can do to to be a support system and help in, in that time? Yeah, I, well, I think one of the best things, I, through the years I've said many times, the church at its best is countercultural in every culture it finds itself yeah. in. If we're ever too comfortable in a culture, we need to ask ourselves mm. why. And one of the things in our culture is we are a death-denying culture. Mm. We don't like to talk about it. Mm. The way we do funerals is denial. Mm. Um, throughout history, Families were very involved in body preparation and all that kind of stuff. Different cultures are different, of course, but I often tell people that the only thing certain after you're born is that you're going to die. You've heard, you know, about the sermon of the dash and everything in between is what you choose. But the the reality is everybody's going to go this way, but we avoid it like crazy. And I think the church needs to be countercultural there. We need to be proactive and not afraid to talk about it. It's ironic to me, and this always has been, but it's become much more um, clear to me, that we believe in heaven, but we still don't like to talk about death. Mm-hmm, yeah. And we pretend like it's not coming until it does, and then try to get the funeral thing over as quick as we can and move on. Mm. And so I think just to not deny it, mm. you know, there, I, 
I'd love to share with you in a moment just some misconceptions about hospice, but one of the greatest misconceptions is just the misconception that we're not going to die. And that one's kind of, you know, it's tongue in cheek because we all know it, but we don't lack, we don't act like it. So if we can recognize that this is a part of life and as a church, it's a part that we can really be involved in and help people. Mm. And just like the, the young man that you know, said, come back tomorrow, I'll let you pray for me. When we're there with people in that time, they often will invite us to be there for a long time after. Mm. Yeah. Plus, people just deserve it. I mean, if they're already sitting next to us on Sundays, um, they just deserve our presence when they're going through yeah. that, whether they're a patient or a family. And so I think... Just being proactive and recognizing that this is something that should be a part of what we do. Mm-hmm. Not and, and this goes back to my calling, if you will, to this. This deserves a bigger piece of your heart than you're giving it. I did funerals um, just by the sheer number of years I was in, and I'd done a number, but it still was like a tenth of the weddings. Right. Um, but, you know, it was just sort of one of those things you have to do as a pastor. I didn't really realize the significance of the moment. Mm. Um, until the closest person to me apart from my wife and my children died. Mm. And the fact that he was in our church and all that, uh, boy, it was we in hospice we call complicated grief. There's all kinds of things coming at you from right. different angles. And just realizing, man, this is something I never knew how it impacts people. And so to recognize that and be proactive um, and just not afraid to enter into it, you know. And, and I know one of the things – might talk about is, you know, there's good ways to enter into it and bad ways. The, the best thing you do is presence. I, mm-hmm. I can't overuse that word. And if you do read Henry Nowen a lot, because Henry Nowen, was, he served as chaplain and he's written a lot about this. And it, just being there is, is such a big part of it. And just not trying to say things. You know, I, I like to talk about the Apostle Peter, that knowing, not knowing what to say, Peter said. <laughs> well, not knowing what to say, be quiet. Mm-hmm. So just presence is good trying to say just the right thing to make it all better for somebody can be the worst thing in the world. Yeah, we can do. absolutely. Yeah, Cause we say dumb stuff that, that people don't want to hear for sure. When somebody's died. Well, that, that's a, that, that leads to my next question. What are, what are things that you've seen both, you know, pastorally and as a chaplain, yeah. things that you see Christians or churches do that are, are really unhelpful? Well, you know, obviously the little things that people say, like God needed another angel, which is theologically <laughs> just awful, but, but also <laughs> it's just, um, it's, it's just not really sensitive, you right. know, and um, anything done to try to make it better intentionally often has a real uh, tendency to backfire and to mm-hmm. make it worse. And so not saying I know just how you feel, but saying I can't imagine how you must feel. Mm-hmm. Um, acknowledging the depth of a person's experience and not trying to lessen it by your own experience. Now, I, I mentioned normalization a little while ago, and I, I'm not talking about that. Normalization is um, it's normal to feel bad mm-hmm. right now, but not normalizing it through my experience. Uh, you know, it's about them. And so um, one of the classic things that the church does, because we do believe in heaven, is just say things about heaven, right? I, the, the Apostle Paul, when he talked about the second coming of Christ, he said, these things I say to you that you would not grieve like those who have no hope. Mm-hmm. He didn't say we don't grieve. Right. Yeah. He said, we just grieve like people that have hope. Absolutely. And so things that we can do that point to that hope. Yeah, that's great. And, um, and to say, um, you know, I, one of the, the most common passages of scripture that I use, of course, is the 23rd Psalm. And the end of it is your goodness and mercy have been with me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Mm. But, you know, a lot of times what they want to know is just, he's with me here. Yeah. He's with me, because that's what that really says. His goodness and mercy with me all the days of my life. That means this day. Yeah. That means the bad day. That means the day I got my diagnosis. Mm. Uh, it, it means a lot of things. Um, and that's what that whole psalm is about. You know, for three verses, he talks about God, and then he hits, do I walk through the valley of the shadow of death? For three verses, he talks to God, mm. because he's there for both, you know, the then and the now. Mm. That's good. That's good. It's really powerful. So kind of thinking about your experiences already and thinking about the, the interdenominational work that you do, the interfaith work that you do, how do you navigate that dealing with people (laughs) who are coming from all different types of faith backgrounds? That's the, that's the real rub. And, um, and I think the thing for me is just to be honest with who I am and let people know 
that I'm comfortable with being who I am and meeting you where you are. I don't feel like I have to change you because of who I'm to hide who I am. I don't think is it's disingenuous. Mm. And so I think that to, because people will ask me, you know, I get asked, I got asked about my faith a lot of different ways. I mean, sometimes I'm getting vetted. Right. Oh, yeah, and I know course. that yeah, I can absolutely. usually tell, you know, I know their background when they start vetting me. Um, and, and so they're just wanting to make sure that I'm not going to do some kind of weird huju, right? Cause they, a lot of people think that's what chaplains are. Um, but then also I get asked because they're wondering if I'm going to try to convert them. Mm. And uh, to quote a pastor, a friend of mine, that's not our mission here because this is the most vulnerable time in this person's life. Mm. I deal with death every single day. I'm wearing a little pink bracelet today. I mean, this, this can be really dramatic, but that's just true. I was in a room today. A, a woman had just died. I walked in because I was asked to go in. And her husband and 13 year old daughter were in the room. He turned around and handed me this bracelet and said she wanted everybody to have one of these. Mm. So I'm around it all the time. It becomes very normalized for me, mm. but it's not for most people. And so to recognize the depth of what they're feeling and not exploit that is real important. Mm. Yeah. And so, but as an evangelical, I'll still use that word if I get to define it, but I, I've been saying that for a long time ago. You let me define them and I'll wear just about any of them, but what happens to them? No. Um, so, but that's my background. I mean, I'll compare my evangelical chops with anybody. You know, yeah. So, but um, actually some of the grief I got first, I mean, the chaplain came from the church because people said, how can you do that? You've got to be trying to lead people to Jesus all the time. So you've got to be bedside trying to get them to pray the prayer. Mm. That's not what we're doing there. Yeah. Not any more than that's what a nurse does. The nurse administering meds may be praying for that patient, and a lot of our nurses do, you know, quietly or so forth. But their goal is to get their pain level down. My goal is to meet them right where they're at and help them be spiritually, emotionally comfortable. I'm not offering them assurances about where they're at for eternity or anything like that. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but that it is a challenge sometimes coming from the background that I come from. I do know that as I have walked through this more and more, I believe God's a lot more loving and inclusive than we perhaps think he is. Mm. I've seen him show up in ways that have blown my mind. Mm. So, yeah. Praise God. So have you ever had to deal with a situation or a tragedy that just really was difficult for you personally? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's just the story is. Mm. It's not necessarily my involvement. In it. Sometimes it's my involvement. Um, I, I remember I, I like to talk about a lady that I met when I first came in that um, she was in her 30s and I was asked to go to her home and when I walked into the home it was a townhouse so her mother opened the door her mother had moved into town to live she was married um, so her husband was there but also her mother her mother opened the door and let me in and she was upstairs in the loft bedroom and so I didn't see her when I first walked in but I saw photos of her and one of the photos was her looking menacingly into the camera with boxing gloves on and a shaved head. And I realized, well, she's like an extreme athlete or something. And the more I looked around, the more I saw that. And then I went up the stairs and saw her. And one of the things about hospice is that we're, we're not the hospital. So I'm not there when people get their diagnosis. Usually they're well down the road. Mm -hmm. So she already was very, very thin, looked really bad. And just sat down you know, next to her, introduced myself and began to talk to her. And, um, and she began to ask me questions about what is it like to die, you know? And I didn't know she wanted to talk about eternity or what did she want to talk about? And she said, no, I got that part wired. I'm a, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. I, I think I understand that, but what's it like to die? I said, you mean like to pass through the veil? And she said, yeah, yeah, that. And I said, well, unfortunately we don't have a whole lot of stories of people going there and coming back that talked about that part, yeah. you know, so we don't really know. But we're just building some relationship with her. And, um, and I, I looked at her and I said, well, you know, every, Discipline kind of has their default setting, and chaplains typically come about once a month. How's that? And she looked right in my eyes and said, I don't know how many months I have left, Artie. And I said, once a week? And she said, yeah. So we grew very close. And as we got closer, I realized this whole thing about the veil, and all, that's not really where she's at. Where she's at was she was an extreme athlete who went through her cancer leaving her. She had a huge blog following. And so she was like this great success story. We kick cancer's butt, which our culture loves to talk about. Oh, yeah. Right. And, um, and then it had come back mm. and now she felt like she had failed all of her friends, all of her followers. Mm. And I get to walk through this time with her and she wouldn't blog anymore. Cause she, what is she going to say? She's failed them all. And I was doing the, Oh God, Oh God prayer. And I just felt 
um, that I should just share with her that we've done her a disservice by talking about kicking cancer's butt and fighting hard, you know, because there's some kinds of cancer that we can cure. And there's some kind, if you have it, you're probably going to die from that. Mm-hmm. And that was the one she had. Yeah. And I said, it doesn't mean you fought, fought any less than a guy that has prostate cancer. You know, it's just, this is what this cancer does. It goes away, it comes back, and, and you fought hard then, you're fighting hard now, but this is it. And she said, so what do I do? And I said, well, what if beating cancer is not whether you live a long time or whether you're cured? What if it's how you decide to live today? purely making this up as I go along and mm. just praying for help. Yeah. And, and she said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you told me when I first met you that you're not going to have a Christmas tree this year because why? And I said, what if you just got a tree, even if it wound up being for a day? And she said, I'll think about it. Next time I came back, knocked on the door, mother opened the door, and when she opened the door, I smelled the tree. And I went up to see her, and uh, I get teary kind of when I think about this young lady because she taught me what it means to be a hospice chaplain. Mm-hmm. Because what it means is making every day you have the best day it possibly can be because we don't know how many days we have. So I went upstairs, sat down next to her, um, and I said, you kick cancer's butt today. And she smiled and said, I went for a ride out in the country with my mom, and I hung my head out the window and mooed at the cows in the field. (laughs) And I said, there you go, girl. You did it. That's awesome. And I did her funeral. It was a couple of hundred people, all good looking. You know, her husband was a fifth degree black belt. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was an instructor just full of people like that mm. that are totally freaked out about death because they don't talk about it. These are not the people that are supposed to die young. Yeah, she absolutely. was a vegetarian, you know, mm. all, and everybody in the room was, you know, probably best looking funeral I ever did, yeah. <laughs> you know, with all those young people yeah. in it. But um, that was a tough one, but I thank God for it. Mm. I mean, she taught me so much. Um, and, you know, there are a bunch of them, but I'll, I'll never forget hers. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's good. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, kind of maybe one last question I have for yeah. you then, Artie. Um, I would imagine, you know, this all, I, I, let me, maybe we say this, all work is hard, right? I think, <laughs> like, I, I yeah. think one of the things at least that the Lord gives me the privilege to do because we have a large number of young people who are kind of transitioning out of academia or whatever they've been doing yeah. into life after that. You know, one of the things I get to tell them is, even if you love what you're doing, there are still going to be days where work Absolutely. is hard because it just is. Yep. See Genesis 3. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but but in that, um, I would imagine for you in particular, your work can be really emotionally and physically exhausting at times. Um, how do you make sure that you are in a, in, a, in a place where you are ready or prepared to be able to support people who are in, in such need with, without, you know, at times feeling like you're going to maybe crumble emotionally yeah. under the, the weight of, of, of the burdens that you're right. helping people carry or seeing them carry. There, there's kind of a, uh, I don't know if I would call it wisdom because I don't think it's necessarily true, but there's this idea that there's a shelf life for people that work in hospice. Now, the fact is I know people who have done it. for My wife's been a hospice nurse for 30 years, but mm-hmm. um, now she's not bedside anymore. She's in administration now, but, um, but I do know nurses and social workers have been doing it for a long time, a lot longer than five years. And I think that the difference is that, um, well, there's no superpower, you know? I mean, I have people tell me sometimes, oh man, yeah, you guys, you just have something special. I'm like, no, there's not a gene. There's not a superpower. (laughs) I do believe that there are things that will happen in our lives that we don't know we have the grace for until it happens. Yeah. The the idea of being a hospice chaplain scared me to death when I really started feeling like this is what God wants me to do. I thought, how am I going to do this? I mean, I'll come undone. Self-care becomes very important. And, um, you know, there are all kinds of illustrations, you know, when you're on an airplane and they tell you in the unlikely event that we should lose cabin pressure, please place the mask over yourself first and then your child. Because you will be out in seconds if you don't do it that way. Right. And uh, when I was a kid, I worked in a gas station. And one of my jobs was when a big gas truck came in with 60,000 gallons of gas, I had to climb up on top, open the hatch, look down in and see how high up the gas went, make sure we were getting everything we were paying for. And I remember being up there and looking down at just that much gasoline, thinking, you know, please nobody do anything with any flames around. But also realizing, and I don't know why it just hit me, but that it's entirely possible for this truck to run out of gas on the side of the road because they didn't put gas in their tank. 
<laughs> with 60,000 gallons mm. there. Wow. And so if you're caring for people at an intense level, whether it's a hospice chaplain or a pastor or in your family or wherever, and you're not taking care of yourself, you're not going to be able to do anybody any good for very long. And so one of the things that as a chaplain that I do, uh, we have meetings that we call IDG, interdisciplinary group, where every discipline is represented and we talk about all the patients by name so that we make sure we're cooperating and, and mm-hmm. we're giving them the best care that we can. But at the beginning of every one of those meetings, this is, Kevin was talking to me earlier about do you miss preaching? Um, I do get to every week do a reflection. Oh, cool. And it's not really devotion because it does need to be reaching people of you know different faiths, even as my colleagues. But I get to share something with them that helps them in what they do. Mm-hmm. And I encourage them probably more than anything else to practice self-care. That's cool. And so I talk to them about, yeah, prayer, but, you know, take a walk, take some time to just really look at a tree, you know, drink a cup of coffee, but swill it around your mouth a little bit like a glass of wine and really enjoy it. Just anything we can do that fills our cup. Mm. Um, that's really important. But I think it's important not just for for hospice chaplains. I mean, I, I do know I'm, I'm not ignorant to the fact that, yeah, it's really grueling. We had recently a, a mother that came here from another town to have a baby, say goodbye to that baby, come to our care center because they couldn't because of COVID have their two-year-old come see them. So they came to our mm-hmm. care center so they could say goodbye to their two-year-old and they died in our care center. I mean, if that doesn't tear your heart out, <laughs> you know, and I sat with her father and her son, I mean, her, her husband in the room, you know, and so those things, yeah, they get to you. But number one, it, you know, for me, again, it started with this deserves more of your heart and you're giving it, so it's worth it. Mm. Um, and if it's worth it, it's worth me taking care of myself so that I can keep showing up and doing it. Mm. And it's worth me cur- encouraging my nurse colleagues and my social work colleagues and, and the ones that are preparing the meals. You know, I, I get to talk to them and, and others. And I don't think it's really that different than, than pastoring church mm. in that we need to encourage people to take care of themselves, you know? So that's one of the things I do. It's mm. really good. That's helpful. You guys have anything else for already? This is super helpful, I think, but. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe, maybe one last question is, okay. is there anything that maybe we didn't cover or something that like really stands out in your mind that you want to uh, share with the listeners? Um, well, you know, there's, yeah, I'll share one thing that I share with families a lot on the, with the early part, because there's a misconception about hospice. I, I mentioned earlier, there's a misconception about death, and that is, and I'm not going to die. But nobody <laughs> really believes that, but we just sort of live that way. Right. But when it comes to hospice work, there's a misconception. And, and one of the misconceptions is, if I sign up with hospice, I'm going to die f- faster. Mm. Right? Um, they're going to change, they're going to quit doing all this stuff to help me. And, and I won't go into it today, but that's just factually not true. If you have two people side by side that are both what we call hospice appropriate, they have the exact same conditions, and they are by the definitions that our healthcare system has, they're appropriate for hospice care. The one that ceases aggressive treatment and goes to palliative treatment will live longer, usually. Interesting. I have a personal story. My brother, I, this is one of my stories that led me, I didn't go to this, this one, I won't go into details on it, but my brother was in the hospital dying. He was hours or days away from death, and we got him to hospice care long before it was on my radar and he lived 10 months um, after he got his symptoms under control and started getting palliative care and he got to know his daughter and his grandchildren and said mm-hmm. it was the very best year of his life wow um so that's the kind of thing that can't happen so there's a misconception that if i sign up for hospice i'm giving up no you're just changing the kind of treatment you've been mm-hmm. getting and so it's a misconception second misconception is if i go to the care center i'm dying this week because everybody knows somebody that's gone to a care right. center um, and die this week. Care centers only emerged in hospice care when they realized we can't do this all at home. We need something that sort of is a somewhere in between hospital and home. And so hospices are able to do it, provide care centers, and, and they're all over the world. And, and we have a bunch of them, but um, one in Gainesville. But people come to the hospice care center to get their symptoms under control. And a lot of times they'll wind up like my brother. We, we jokingly refer to it as the hospice cure. A lot of people get better when they start getting hospice care and they think I'm cured well, you're not cured, but you're doing a lot better right now. And, and they can come in. It's called general inpatient care. It just means I, I need to get what I can't get wherever I am, whether it's yeah. a facility or home or wherever. And so they, it gives them the ability to get things kind of under control and they go home. Another one's respite. The, the gas truck, the oxygen mask, uh, pa- families are there by the bedside and they're worn out. And so they can come 
bring their loved one to the care center, let them stay for five days and uh, they can go to Disney world, you know, mm-hmm. or just sleep or yeah. whatever. It's their respite. And so, and then they take their loved one home. Right. So I try to help people understand, not, don't be afraid of the care center. One of my favorite patients loved her to death. Uh, she was scared to death to go to the care center because she knew that she'd never come out. And the first time she had to go there, she actually had to go because there was a hurricane and she, it, her oxygen got cut off at home. Oh, wow. So she went there and then went home and realized, hey, this is pretty good. Yeah. And so she started coming back like yeah. with some regularity yeah. when she needed to get her symptoms under control. So that misconception needs to be dealt mm. with so that people aren't afraid of, of that. And then I jokingly say, and when I walk in the room, it's today because they think I'm going to go in and do this and they're going to die. <laughs> and so just, just taking away some of the mystery and, and just some of the, um, the avoidance. Mm. If there's anything that I can say to people, it's we above all people as followers of Jesus should be present with people when they're making that transition mm. into the next life. And I believe in that transition with all my heart more than I ever have. Um, seen some crazy things happen that attest to that. Um, and it deserves our being involved in it and not being so afraid of it. Mm. And again, our culture is uniquely afraid of it yeah. in time and on the globe right now. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I'll definitely say as the young one at the table <laughs> being uh, 26, uh, this is definitely very insightful. Um, just like in the last few years, for me personally, seeing more death than I have in like the last two decades uh, before that, you know, it's definitely helpful to recognize, first of all, how ignorant I am of this topic and like realistically, culturally speaking, how much I don't like this topic, Um, but to recognize how important it is to be able to understand process and, you know, be healthy in dealing with this and walking through this with others. So definitely like, thank you so much for your insight. Well, into thank this. you for having me. It's yeah, been a lot of fun. Absolutely. So yeah. Uh, with that, uh, thank you everyone for listening. We're glad you tuned in and uh, please share this with others. If you think this has been helpful, um, be sure to like subscribe, comment. Uh, this is a, uh, uh, question that we got from an email and we're able to uh, really figure out a way to talk about death um, and just like that process in uh, coming to the end of life. So with that, like guys, feel free to reach out. If you have questions, comments about anything, please let us know. Email us at podcast.alatheagainsville.com and we'll be happy to do our best to uh, process through those questions and those topics with you guys. So Uh, Without further ado, uh, we'll see you again in the future um, and go and be the church. Or if it's really, really good and we're talking for 90 minutes, we'll just cut it up into two parts. Okay, we'll stop and I'll call my wife and tell her that I'm not bringing dinner home. I told her I was going to bring dinner home. (laughs)